Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the word of God says. This is the first major and practical exhortation or command that the author of Hebrews gives. He gives two other imperatives or commands in the text up to this point. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. That was the beginning of chapter two, and we spent a significant portion of time there. Then he also says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. So those are general, very high-level, broad commands. Pay attention to what we have heard. Consider Jesus. That's all he's really commanded us to do up to this point. Both of these are essential and I think are building blocks into this imperative, this command that we have in chapter 3. Exhort one another every day. It's very practical. It's very earthy. It's on the ground level of what you should actually be doing in light of what he said. Just as a reminder, what is going on with his hearers is that there is a real risk of them setting their Christianity, as it were, on the back burner, or being Christians only in heart, but not in public proclamation of allegiance to Jesus. Rome hated Christians before Constantine made Christianity the state religion. The Jews hated Christianity and were seeking ways to persecute and stop this, what they perceived as a false teaching. And so it was very difficult. It was very unpopular. It was not financially advantageous to be a Christian in their time. And so they thought, well, Rome's okay if we just are good Jews. Maybe we don't have to be so in allegiance with this whole Jesus thing. Maybe we don't have to speak of him publicly as Messiah. He can just be Messiah in our hearts. The author of Hebrews' answer is a resounding no. You can't do that. Pay much closer attention to what you've heard. Consider Jesus. Exhort one another. Stay in this. If we abandon this faith-filled total commitment to this new infinitely glorious covenant in Christ, then how will we escape the wrath of God if those who forsook the old, less glorious covenant also did not escape the wrath of God? And our modern minds want to answer this question by saying, well, the new covenant in Jesus is so glorious, it's so big and so great that even those who have forsaken a faithful commitment to it are still in the covenant. We all are, at some level, universalists, or at least inclusivists. We want the door to be very wide. But that's not how Jesus presents it. There is the real risk of falling away. 
I do believe in the security of the believer. I feel obligated and joyful to say this every time I address this. If you're truly saved, if you're truly in Christ, if you are one of the ones that the Father has given to Jesus, you can't be lost. He doesn't lose what he saves, but you can deceive yourselves. Don't be like Judas, who was willing to suffer with Jesus, be associated with Jesus, go with Jesus, maybe experience financial loss for the sake of Jesus for a time. But then when it came to it, when he realized he wasn't really going to get the results he wanted, he wasn't going to get the financial reward maybe that he wanted or the fame he wanted, he betrayed him. A good question to ask to help understand this risk of falling away is to compare Judas to Peter. When was Peter saved? It's a good question. When was Peter saved? If we believe what we believe about the Holy Spirit, he wasn't really truly saved in the Christian sense of the term until Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was given. But he was called to and commanded to continue in his allegiance to Jesus through all of that. And in fact, he even did fall away. He denied Christ three times, but repented. When he returned again, he even encouraged his brothers. Don't be like Judas. Even if your life is full of false starts and missteps, be like Peter, who endured even through failing. Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. The text doesn't make any sense at all if, it, if to be a Christian means simply to have one moment of clarity and ask Jesus into your heart and then to live the rest of your life 95% exactly like the rest of the world. Enter through the narrow door. Many will seek to enter what will not be able. That's the Son of God speaking. You can't lose your salvation. I want to say that over and over. However, you can deceive yourself. And there are at least two other entities other than yourself that are trying to deceive you. The enemy wants to, you to feel safe and secure when you're not in Christ. And also, other people who may not be truly Christians don't want you to start asking yourself the hard questions because then they would be forced to ask the hard questions along with you. And they would be made to feel uncomfortable. So people who have a lackadaisical commitment to Jesus don't want you to start down that road of asking the hard questions to test yourselves to see if you're really in the faith, to make, to, in the faith, to make your calling and election sure, as Peter commands. If you are a true Christian, the enemy wants you to feel nothing but guilt and shame and doubt. So is there any hope? This is the reason. I've said all this to say. This is why this command to exhort one another is so important. If you're not in Christ and you've been deceiving yourself or the enemy's been deceiving you or Nominal Christians, Christians in name only, have been trying to give you a sense of security so they won't be bothered in their consciences. Or if you're really a Christian over here and you're just plagued with guilt and doubt and shame because of the enemy, what is the solution? The solution, as the author says, is to exhort one another. You can't do this alone. You want, the enemy wants you to be isolated so that the cumulative effect and benefit of being together, the people of God, doesn't happen in your heart. 
Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Regardless of where you are in your testimony, if the Lord is gradually bringing you along to salvation, the risk really exists for you to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And if you are a Christian, the risk really exists of him hardening you or you hardening yourself through the deceitfulness of sin and experiencing loss. And this is why I'm not going to be satisfied when we come to the end of this mini-series if I've left any room for any one of you to say, well, this exhorting, this really isn't for me. Or, well, I don't know really how to start. Or, I'm good. I don't really need anyone in my life doing that. Or, I'm not qualified. Or, I'm an introvert. How can I exhort another person? I'm an introvert. That, I'll leave that to the extroverts out there. I don't like talking to people, especially about important stuff. I'll come across as mean, or people have tried to do this for me and it hasn't worked. Or no one listens to me. I try, I tell them all the things that are wrong about themselves and how they need to change and no one listens to me. Right? Again, just blame me. Right? We've got to be doing this. We've got to. If we believe the text, we have to be doing this. And just blamely say, Pastor told me I had to. Bible tells me I had to. So it may come off as clunky and awkward at first, but you've got to be doing this. So the first message was I tried to explain verses 7 through 19, just in context, draw it all together. The big picture, I called that the war against unbelief. The second message in this series was to explain that we have to begin in prayer. This is a spiritual work and we need the help of the Holy Spirit to make it work at all. Or it's not going to work. We have to begin by prayer, praying for one another, praying for ourselves that we go out (coughs) filled with the Spirit into each other's lives and help each other endure. The next message I tried to underline and underscore the fact that when he says one another, he means anyone and everyone. It's not just those of you who are the same age or the same life stage or people who are similar to you or see see things the same way as you. Anyone and everyone, exhort one another. The person who's in front of you, whoever that is, exhort them. Find a way. Do it. Last week, Mother's Day, we talked about how husbands can exhort their wives. What I think I did well was to try to connect what the author is saying here to the Genesis account. And if you missed that, you can go back and listen to it. It's recorded, so I won't rehearse that argument. What I think I need to clarify more is how God makes up for the failures of husbands of all kinds to bring his daughters safely home. So let's just say that your husband's doing a terrible job of exhorting you for any reason. God makes up for that. There are massive venues of grace that he provides, including your church. I have witnessed many marriages saved, not because they have had great conversations or went through any counseling program, but just because they got under the waterfall of God's grace made available in a healthy church. Seek out a spiritual mother and father. Paul says this to the Corinthians. You have countless guides in Christ, people who are willing willing to teach you tons of stuff. Countless guides in Christ, but not many fathers. 
There are not a lot of spiritual mothers and fathers who take that as their primary ministry responsibility. I will be a mother. I will be a father. And in these situations where God's ideal isn't happening, where a husband isn't exhorting a wife, or this week where a wife isn't exhorting a husband, those spiritual mothers and fathers are absolutely essential. And those of you who are older in this room, maybe widows or widowers, that's your role. You can be a spiritual mother or spiritual father. And there are many who need it. Paul says, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Your godly behavior and your submission to God in the view of your spouse may in fact be the means through which God saves them. That's a powerful and glorious responsibility, and it may take a very long time. So I have to walk a razor's edge here because not all hope is lost, Right? If your spouse isn't doing for you the things that they're supposed to do for you and exhorting you and helping you endure, not all hope is lost, but I don't want to let husbands especially off the hook. Think, well, I don't have to do my job. She's got her church. she got her church friends. She's got the Bible. God does make up where man fails. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And there are exceptions. My prayer is that we would be a church of exceptions. So last week I spoke almost exclusively to husbands in the room. As a gift, I think, to the women of this church on Mother's Day to exhort your husbands to exhort you in the way that the Bible calls them to. I think that's probably the best gift I could try to give to the mothers in this room is to inspire, to spur on your husbands to do what they're called to do. This week, wives, what's your part to play in this grand drama? First, I want to just say without any reservation that it is your responsibility, wives, to exhort your husbands. Regardless of what your view of how marriage should work and the complementarian roles that exist or don't exist from your view in the marriage relationship, it is both responsibilities, both spouse's responsibility to exhort one another. Last week we ended on a final exhortation to the wives just by saying, be patient with us. Right? So I want to begin there. And I'll go to the very end of the Genesis narrative where both Adam and Eve sin against God. And it is ultimately Adam's responsibility. When God shows up, he says, Adam, where are you? Because he's the head of the household, his responsibility is to lead his wife, and he failed miserably. But we don't have any indication from the text that Eve held that in bitterness towards her husband. She might have, but Moses doesn't want to draw that out. And I think the point is that she walks in faith and in grace towards her husband who failed her miserably. So be patient with us. In fact, when I was working on this sermon, this was the first thing I typed out, so the document saved as be patient with us. I think that's kind of an umbrella term to say over everything that I said last week and even this week, be patient with your husband. Many or most of us feel the weight that we're trying, that we're called to do and we're trying to do our best. And often it isn't enough. It was fundamentally Adam's failure 
but Eve didn't express any resentment as far as the text is concerned. We feel the weight of our failure, and many of us are trying to figure it out and trying to get better. And your special position in our lives gives you a power to manifest God's grace to us in how patient you are with us. Has God been patient to you? Has God been gracious to you? Magnanimous towards you? You, the wives in this room, have a special place to be that gracious, that patient, that magnanimous. Now, I said I wouldn't revisit the argument to connect this text to the Genesis account, so let's just go there. Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Here is how, in addition to being patient with us, how wives you can exhort your husbands in the Lord. And if you're not married, you don't have a husband, just wait until the end. There will be several exhortations. I promise I'm going to address everyone in this room through the series and I already have through the one another passage, anyone and everyone. So just bear with us and listen and figure out how you can help the wives in this room do what they're called to do for their husbands. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Exhort your husbands by treating them as ones made in the image of God. We spoke about this last week. I think there is a theological significance to the fact that Adam is made from the dust and that Eve is made from a rib. It carries a sense of greater refinement, greater beauty, greater, greater uh, finesse, if you will. And this is how I think we should understand what Peter says when he says the wife is the weaker vessel. It's not saying that you're in any way inferior or less than. But it's the difference between a skillet and a dimitos cup, right? A camping mug versus silver or crystal glassware. It's finer. It's more beautiful. It's, it's more specific. Dust versus rib. But we're both made in the image of God. And God doesn't create man first and then woman as like, well, the guy is God's trial run, right? And it was like the 1.0 or the beta test for humans. And then came Eve, the 2.0 or the final release, right? Both are made in the image of God. And you may think it's easy to think of men and women as being made in the image of God equally, but just look at our culture. To be masculine at all is almost perceived as a hate crime. And we'll get to a little bit more of this in, as, as we go along the, uh, the different ways you can exhort your husband, but don't view him as inferior. That's kind of a popular sentiment nowadays. Men, right? The glory of God's creation of the man is in no way less glorious than his creation of the woman. Man is appointed as God's steward, the first scientist, as my father-in-law says, at every wedding that he preaches. He's to name 
every creature, to go out into all the earth and bring order and meaning, to rule as his steward over all of creation. Wives, what you have in your husband is one in the form of the first embodiment of God's image, specially suited to know God and obey God, built to, in a special way, go out into the untamed and unruly world and submit it to the order of God. There's a forward-looking vision of biblical masculinity here. It's to stand on the bow of the ship as waves crash over us and look towards untamed lands and dark corners that have not been subjected to Christ and to say, onward. In Christ for the kingdom, this means we are involved and even commanded to pick up the banner, memorize the war chant, and lead the charge towards areas of lingering darkness in our own hearts, in our own homes, in our towns, and in our world, and subject it to Christ as his kingdom is coming. Jesus is our example, of course, for how to do this best. But Jesus said of John the Baptist, this is the greatest man ever born of woman. So men in this room, you are to follow John the Baptist's example in saying, prepare ye the way of the Lord. That is your call. So wives, what you have in your husband is someone who is specially suited to lead the charge in that way. And this isn't to say that you can't also lead the charge. But as the genders complement each other, the man is to have the responsibility of taking the initiative, identifying the enemy and going out, carrying the banner, chanting the war chant. Third, exhort your husbands by understanding that he needs your help and his inadequacy is by design. It's not like God created, we'll just read the text, Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Then the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God caused a deep sleep to fall onto the man. And while he slept, he took out one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh and the rib that God that the Lord God had taken out of the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And he said, this at last is bones of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of men. He needs your help. And this inadequacy is by design. It'd be offensive for me to say the opposite in our culture. The genders need each other to be all that God intended to fill the earth and subdue it, and to understand the image of God. But it is only implied, or at least explicitly implied in this text, that the man needs the woman. It's not, it's not explicitly stated the other way. It's implied, but not explicitly. It's not good. The only thing that God calls not good in the creation account before sin entered the human race, is that it is not good for man to be alone. And it's not like he was surprised. Like I said, it's not like the beta test. and like, man, he really needs some help, right? He needs a patch, you know, introduced into the software. He needs betterment. 
It was by design. God wasn't surprised by the fact that it wasn't good for man to be alone. He's carrying out this story that's unfolding in his creation. God designed Adam to need companionship. And he was given a task too big for him to do alone. As he was obeying God and naming all the creatures, God looked at his striving and his working even without sin and said it's not good for him to do this alone. The husband is supposed to provide, protect, preside, lead, care for, be emotionally available, be present, be strong, to set the agenda for a kingdom looking, uh, a kingdom, uh, struggling for the right word, for a kingdom forward looking idea for what the family's to be about, a trajectory. There we go. The husband is supposed to be humble in all of that leading. There's a lot that husbands are called to do, and he can't do it alone, wives. Understand that God created Eve in the first place because he needed help. Exhort us to do these things. And don't be bitter at the fact that we need help. It's by design. It's before sin entered the equation. Next, wives, exhort your husband by embracing your role as helper. The word helper might offend some of you, but it's the Bible, it's not me. If you're not married, this word, word still applies, as we talked about last week, and that femininity in general is the idea of coming to an unfinished, often crude work of a kingdom trajectory, of a Godward trajectory, and bringing it to be completed, beautifying it, making it done, making it more glorious. I don't think the word helper or that God creates Eve woman as the helper should offend you because that's what Jesus says of the Holy Spirit. It's better for you that I go because if I don't know, if I don't go away, then the helper will not come. But if I go, then the father will send the helper. Does it diminish the glory of God, the Holy Spirit, as infinitely powerful, infinitely glorious, eternal in nature that he is called the helper? Not at all. And this should help you clarify what your role is to be towards your husband. The Holy Spirit doesn't come and do the holiness that we're called to do by himself. This is called glove theology. That the Holy Spirit comes in and just animates you to do what God desires. And it's not really you. It's not really your will being involved. It's just the Holy Spirit doing it. That's not what we believe, and that's not the role of the Holy Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit is to empower you, to call you, to draw you so that it is your will, it is your desires, and it is your action, your doing to fulfill the commands of God. A great illustration of this is when I was a manager at Chick-fil-A, okay? And most of my team were teenagers, right? And I'm in college, I'm a you know, semi-responsible human being, and a lot of teenagers aren't, okay? No offense, it's just they're trying to get their lives together, okay? And they're just not organized, Right, And I was better at basically every place in the store, every place that there was a job to do, I was better at all of them 
uh, all of those places to work than everyone in my team. So what I did, and I ran myself into the ground trying to do this every shift, is I would, there would be a big need that would come up and I would just go do it for them because I knew I could do it in half the time and do it so much better and I wouldn't have to come after them afterward and clean up their mess, okay? That's not how you're supposed to be as a wife and that's not how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. He teaches us, he enables us, he empowers us to do what we're called to do. And it might be a lot more messy than if you, wife, just jumped in and did it yourself. You might be much more qualified. And in many cases, many of you are to jump in and just do it yourself. But your role as the helper is to encourage, exhort, empower, however much more qualified you may be so that the man can do what he's called to do. Next, wives, exhort your husband by holding fast to him and be one flesh with him exclusively in mind, body, and heart. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Again, touched on this last week. I don't want to spend a ton of time here just for the sake of all who are in here. But just a brief statement to the wives in this room. No sinner deserves any grace. But God shows grace anyway because of who he is. If your commitment to embrace your husband and your responsibility in this area of intimacy hinge on your husband deserving or him earning your favor in this area, then you have left the economy of mercy and grace and you're preaching a false doctrine of works salvation. Think about that. Like I said last week, just embrace all the Bible has to say in this area, especially 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5. Moving on. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So there will be three exhortations in light of this passage, how you wives can exhort your husband. And this kind of hinges on the question, what should have Eve done? What should she have done? And I think these three are just immediately apparent from the text. Exhort your husband, wives, by graciously expecting more from us. Graciously expecting more. What Eve should have done is to say, hey, Adam, um, do you want to you say something to this deception that's being spoken? Or what do you have to say? Exhorting him, essentially, to, to speak up, 
He just stood there and didn't say anything as far as the text is concerned. And just let this whole dialogue go between the serpent and the woman, and they're both deceived. Exhort your husband, wives, by expecting more. Your statements and your projected emotions towards and about your husband will, in a way, form the level of delivery you will get from him. The grace-filled expectation is, I always knew you could be this. I always knew you could do this. I always knew you had it in you. The majority of ads you hear are built on the premise of men's incompetency. Part of that is because women are the number one people making purchases in the household, so these ad creators are appealing to you women and playing on the idea that you have bitterness or less and lower expectations of your husband. Because we're sinful, because we husbands are sinful, when you say things like, you can't, you're clueless, you're not careful, you're forgetful and incompetent, or if that's how your body language is portrayed and understood, then we'll just say, okay, fine. I'll let you win that argument. I'll just be that, what you say I am. You should graciously expect more from us. Take initiative, wives, by telling him to take initiative. Eve should have said, tell me again, Adam, what God said. Know your Bibles, wives, so you know how he should be leading you. And so you can graciously help him as he sometimes fumbles about. That doesn't mean that you're any less capable But you can take advantage of more of what God has put in place to care for you when you have a holy dissatisfaction with leading yourself spiritually and work with all patience and love to help your husband lead you. There's leadership in making helpful suggestions and offering help. Next, what else should Eve have done? Exhort your husband by stirring him up to the standard of what he's been called to. And this will look different for each of you wives as your husbands are different. We're not all the same. Here are just a few ideas. Be gracious and respond well even when his attempts to lead fall flat. The rejection of a gift or the rejection of an attempt to serve is one of the most painful experiences a person can have, and I think that's especially true for men. We try to put something together, try to plan something, try to do it right, and try to execute, and it's not as nice or as good as we thought it was going to be, and because of that, you may not respond in grace and reject it, as it may be rightly needs to be rejected, but that's not grace. That's not patience. Second, help him surround himself with mighty men, not worthless fellows. This is difficult because male friendship has fallen on hard times. Our overly sexualized culture makes it feel awkward for men to have deep affection for another guy. It just is. 
But think of David and Jonathan. It says that David longed for and loved Jonathan more than his own soul. Brother to brother, yours in life and death. Without exception, every great man of God that we talk about in the history of Christianity had a group of solid male friends. I couldn't think of any one guy that I revere as like a great person in the history of Christianity, the guys who didn't have a group, at least, of some solid male friends. Think of even Jesus himself. When he is at his point of greatest temptation, where he pleads with the Father that this cup would pass from him, that he wouldn't have to drink from the wrath of God, the full force of his wrath poured out. He brings us three closest friends. Come, pray with me. Be close to me. If Jesus needed an association of friends or wanted an association of friends so that he would endure, how much more your husband? Your husband needs male friends and friends that are mighty men, like David's mighty men, not worthless fellows who draw him away from the Lord and make him think it's okay to not do what he's called to do. Third, help him critique the quality and flavor of your life together by the gospel. It's kind of a very packed sentence. The American dream rarely overlays nicely with what we're called to be in Christ. It doesn't. What your husband is given the responsibility to do is to lead a, a, a totally different type of lifestyle. We do things differently in the kingdom. We have a different hierarchy of values. Different things matter to us in Christ. Eternal things. Don't seek the things that the Gentiles seek. Okay, and what we'll do as husbands is if there's no one calling us to task and saying, hey, this really doesn't line up with the gospel, we'll be just fine falling into the ruts of the American dream. And let it be about wealth, and let it be about security, and let it be about safety and peace. We need you there beside us saying, hey, does this line up with the gospel? How can we together make this area of our lives more about the kingdom? Verse 8 through 19. When they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man his wife and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you? Not to eat. The man said, The woman you gave, who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the, of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. You shall, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, 
of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Wives, exhort your husbands by not trusting your own heart. The first reason for this is obvious from the text. She listened to the serpent. The woman is the only one who is both deceived and leads another one astray. The husband is only led astray because he doesn't step up in leadership. And the serpent only deceives because he is the enemy. The woman is both deceived and leads another astray. If you read what appealed to her about it, it was desirous to the eyes and it was desirable to make one wise. Don't trust your own heart. Second reason, and this might be extremely controversial, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. We dealt indirectly with the husband's side of this last week, and several of the things I said were directed towards your husbands to tell them how to not rule in this way. In the way that the Gentiles rule in lording their authority over you, I told them many times last week how to be humble and how to be caring and how to be gentle. This week, it's important for you wives to consider that part of the curse for the woman because your desire will be contrary to your husband. The only other place this specific word for desire is used is when God is speaking to Cain. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Again, this might be offensive, but the nature of the curse you are under, wives, the result of sin in your life wreaks havoc on your hearts and it mounts up an antagonistic, possessive, destructive, consuming, contrary desire towards your husband. No matter how romantic or strong we are, no matter how good of a husband or father we are, we cannot fix that about you and you definitely cannot fix that yourself. Jesus is the one you need. Don't trust your own heart. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. We talked about this verse in our Sunday school session. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? It's not that your heart is any more deceitful than ours. Our lives are just different. A lot of the emotions you feel towards your husband are part of this curse. Don't trust your own heart. Next. Wives, exhort your husbands by realizing that the very thing he has been given to do by God, the very thing that we are specifically suited to do to provide and protect and to steward, to work and to lead is the very thing that's going to bring us the most pain, frustration, depression and hopelessness. Understand that the man's desire to work and provide is rooted in something deeper and more glorious than just trying to survive it was to be meaningful. Work existed before sin entered the equation. Have you ever thought about that? Adam had a job to do, and it was fulfilling work, and he was specially suited to work. But now, because of sin, thorns, thistles, sweat, futility, pain, and death. Wives, 
we try to do what we're called to do. We try to work in these rhythms that uh, we perceive in our hearts. But it makes war against us. The way I said it last week, it often blows up in our faces. As we try to do what God has called us to do, it's just going to make it hard for us. We feel keenly our glory and our strength fading and the legacy of our achievements passing into the never-ending dark of the past. Even in ministry, if you're working in an extremely fulfilling realm, like preaching the word of God or ministering, or maybe you're involved in the medical field and you get to do something to help people, or maybe you're involved in any type of caring work. Maybe that work is very fulfilling, but you feel the vanity, vanity of Ecclesiastes. Help us guard our hearts by resting not in the work of our hands. You have a unique role in your husband's life to do that. My worth is not in what I own. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the preacher boast in his preaching. Let not the husband boast in his ability to be a good husband. Let not the father boast in his ability to be a good father. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Next, wives, exhort your husbands by reminding him of the curse against the serpent. Yes, Adam failed, and you fail me often, husband. But we together look towards the second Adam. A better man than you has been born. And he has ushered in a new humanity. And yes, we will return to, to dust, and our achievements are weak and imperfect and will come to nothing one day as the vanity and futility reigns. But this one, the crusher of the serpent, has created a new humanity. Jesus has succeeded where Adam and all his sons have failed. And he will come again and will raise our dead bodies up to eternal life. Preach the gospel to your husbands. The offspring of the woman has come. We need to hear you preach the gospel to us more than almost anything else in our lives. You're not going to fix us. You're just not. The serpent head crusher will one day as he puts these mortal bodies to death and raises us up to life eternal. You're not going to fix your husband, but you can point him to the one who can. There's a special beauty and grace that only you possess to say, I see you perfect and made whole one day. Do not fear the serpent has been crushed. There's so much power that you wield when we know we have failed you and deserve your displeasure for you to respond in joy and forgiveness. Then the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Exhort your husband by helping him take advantage of all the means of grace that God has placed in your lives together. 
What it shouldn't sound like is to say, so uh, have you read your Bible and prayed today, husband? Uh, you know, if you don't do these spiritual disciplines, you'll suffer for it, and I'll suffer too, don't you? Here's what it ought to sound like. Come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Come and find rest. Look at what I have found. Here is how this has helped me. Here is what I used to think and feel. And then I read this or that, or I understood this or that. And then I went to the house of God or whatever it is. And here's how I am now. Just like the woman at the well, when she went and said, could this man be the Christ? He told me everything I'd ever done. Come and see. You're to extol the works of God in your own life to your husband as you model taking on these garments of grace yourself to show us how to reach out and do the same. And Adam knew his wife Eve, chapter 4, verse 1. And Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son, Cain, saying, I've gotten a man, a son, with the help of the Lord. You're to exhort us by being example for grace-based living for us. She says, by the help of the Lord, I have done this. Won't spend a ton of time here, but you have a special place in our lives to show it what it means to live your life by grace and depending on the grace of God. Also verses 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. You can be an example to us of trusting God no matter the circumstances. How tragic would, have, would it have been for your firstborn to kill your secondborn? And yet when Seth is born, she says, God has given me another offspring. And she may be pointing back to the promise against the serpent that an offspring will come. The line isn't broken. And it says at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Be an example to us of trusting God and believing him no matter the circumstances. Just a few final exhortations to the unmarried. Ladies, this is the type of woman you need to be for your husband one day. And guys, this is the type of woman you should be looking for. To kids in the room, I'm going to speak almost exclusively to you next week. So I appreciate your patience and hanging with me through these last two weeks. And I'm basically going to speak exclusively to you and talking to your parents about how they can exhort you and how you can exhort them. Okay? But for the time being, consider how you can help. Building off what I said last week, how radical would it be for our church to be characterized not by necessarily our good programs, our good preaching, our good music, or our building, or anything fancy, but characterized by children who prioritized the health of their mommy and daddy's relationship. The prophecy in Malachi is that Elijah will come and begin to turn the hearts of the children towards their fathers and the hearts of the fathers towards their children. It is a sign of great spiritual things to come when families are reconciled in this particular way where children's hearts are turned toward their parents and parents' hearts are turned towards their children. 
Let your life in your parents' home, kids, be characterized by that, so that your hearts would be turned towards your parents. To the non-believers in the room, twice now, this week and last week, I've spoken about the serpent and that the one who came to crush the serpent has finally come. And everything that's wrong in this world, everything that has come into this world through sin, through the curse of God against sin, has been made inept. It has been dealt with. It has been undone. And if you have heard this hope in the serpent crusher, the that one has come and he has ushered in a new humanity, the second Adam, the offspring of the woman. You must respond in faith. It is only in him that the curse against you can be undone one day. You have a death problem because of what happened in these chapters. And only the serpent crusher can help you with that death problem. You must repent and cling to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. And I pray that as I have attempted to exhort the wives in this room to be for their husbands what only they can be in that special way, even in light of your other graces that make up for when they fail, I pray that you would unite husband and wives together through these last two messages and she would Exhort them together by the glory of what we've seen in, in this text. I pray that as we go, that you would bring real change in households. Maybe it wouldn't be immediate. Maybe it wouldn't even be this year, but you'd begin to make steady, permanent change in people's lives through what we've heard. And I pray that as we respond in worship again, if there's anyone who needs to Seek the Lord today by your spirit that you would draw them to yourself, that they would find someone to speak to and be saved. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.